All right. Luke chapter 6. This is a... uh, The more you dig into this, the more you realize that this was a special scene here. We're introduced in our Bibles to Luke chapter 6, verse 12, where it says, And in it came to pass in those days. So we're given the setting of what's going to follow here. In those days. You might be wondering why the writer Luke includes that phrase, in those days. Obviously, you know, it was in the days of Jesus. But was it narrower than that? Well, let me remind you that so far, beginning uh, back in chapter 5, and I believe um, verse 17... The scribes and Pharisees and doctors of the law, the Jewish law, came on the scene because they begin to be attracted by what Jesus is doing, but for the wrong reasons. They feel threatened. And you can see the situation start to escalate in uh, hostility here. We saw last week in chapter 6, verses 1 through 11, that the very last verse, 11, which which comes right before verse 12, those days, says, And they, the scribes and Pharisees, were filled with madness, anger, and communed one with another what they might do to Jesus. There is an escalating hostility. It is the time of the hatred of Jesus among the religious leaders of Judaism, and it is fast reaching its apex. It's precisely at this time here that Jesus can feel the heat of His coming death. It is less than two years away. And he will be executed, and after his execution, he will, of course, arise from the dead. Their work will be defeated. He will remain on earth for 40 days, and he will ascend to the Father, and his earthly work will have to be handed off to somebody else. So that phrase in those days is very significant. It is setting the stage for what Jesus will do in the following verses, verses 13 through 16. There's also an action there besides the setting. It says that he went out into a mountain, or it's literally in the original, into the mountain to pray. He went out into the mountain to pray. We don't know which mountain it was. There's a good possibility it might have been the same mountain that delivers his famous sermon on the mount uh, that will follow here. We're not really sure. He goes out to the mountain to pray. And notice what it says about that. Because Luke doesn't just say he went to pray. But look how it's described. It says, and continued, verse 12, and continued, or endured is the word. Endured all night in prayer to God, or literally in the original, in the prayer of God. He endured all night in the prayer of God. So he goes out to pray. He endured the God prayer in the prayer of God. Why would he need to pray all night? Well, certainly he was asking for wisdom for what would follow in verse 13 where he would choose out of his followers, 12. Certainly he would ask for wisdom. Certainly he would ask for strength in his mission. Certainly he would ask for clarity. But there's something bigger than this here. Something bigger than this. The Lord Jesus recognizes that these are the men to whom the baton will be passed. These are the men who are a crucial part in the unfolding plan of redemption where God is calling out a people for His name. And God is establishing these gospel communities, these local churches that will be expressions of this people for His name. 
And these men were to be the backbone of that. In fact, they were to be the foundation of that. And so Jesus prays. I think Jesus prays here for the big picture. Besides simply the circumstances of, of, the, uh, of the next day and wisdom in choosing, He's praying for the big picture. How do we know Jesus is a big picture type of prayer? Well, we can see Jesus' uh, actual prayer, one of Jesus' actual prayers to His Father for His people in John chapter 17. If you turn over there with me, John chapter 17, it's the next book, chapter 17. This is Jesus' prayer with His disciples. It's the night before He's crucified. This would have been two years later from our story in Luke. Jesus is in the upper room with His disciples. They've had their Passover meal. And Jesus prays. He, he, uh, he reminisces and He joys in the fact of the fellowship that He has with His Father, God the Father. And then He begins to bring some requests before the Lord about these men who He was in the room with and then those who would even follow after. In John 17.11, He says, Holy Father... Keep through thine own name those whom thou hast given me, that they may be one, or unified, as we are. In verse 13 he says, And now come I to thee, and these things I speak in the world, that they might have my joy fulfilled in themselves. In verse 15 he says, I pray not that thou shouldest take them out of the world, but thou shouldest keep them from the evil, or from the evil one. Verse 17, he says, Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. In 18, he says, I have sent them into the world. 19, he says, They might be sanctified through the truth. And then, folks, perhaps even the Lord Jesus, in his omniscience, his foreknowledge, saw us in this picture. When Jesus prays, neither, verse 20, neither pray I for these alone, but for them also which shall believe on me through their word. Why was it so important that Jesus would invest his life in 12 men? The answer really is in verse 20 of John 17. Them also which shall believe on me through their word. These men's word. But they may be one, verse 21. That they would behold His glory in verse 24. In verse 26, that the love wherewith Thou hast loved me may be in them, and I in them. You have to think some of those things were present in the prayer of the Lord Jesus. In Luke chapter 6, verse 12, as He prayed all night in prayer to God. So that's what Jesus did. Then... In verse 13 it says, And when it was day of Luke chapter 6, He called unto Him His disciples. So He gathers the group of those who said they would be followers of Him. He calls unto them His disciples. And notice it says, And of them He chose twelve. So of them He picks out twelve. Now He would probably had a large following of disciples at this time. Uh, it was a large group. It was probably a very diverse group. Some were kind of on the fence. Some were committed. But out of these, he chooses 12. And you see there are a mixed lot of men here. Verse 13 says, And of them he chose 12, whom also he named apostles. So he calls his disciples, the whole group together, 
Of those, he chooses twelve. And of those twelve, then he names them apostles. He separates them from the rest of these followers. So that's what Jesus did. Now who were these men? Who were they? Well, Simon, whom he also named Peter, we've had an encounter with him in chapter 5, verse 1 through 11. And also at the end of chapter 4 with Simon's, Peter's mother-in-law. Simon, he calls Peter and Andrew, James and John. Four of these men, we find in other parts of the Gospels, were fishermen. Philip and Bartholomew, we know a little about. Matthew, verse 15, we believe is the same person as Levi. Chapter 5, verse 27. He was a tax collector. He sat at the toll booth and he collected taxes for the Roman government, the oppressive government. Thomas, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon called Zelotes, or Simon the Zealot. Judas the brother of James, and Judas Iscariot, which is also a traitor. Four men, a tax collector, a zealot, and then others we don't really know what their occupations were that they left. But you can see right away, this is a group of diverse men. They were diverse. Came from all different walks of life. Came from different political perspectives. Matthew, who worked for the Roman government, and Simon the zealot, whose uh, zealot was one whose, whose uh, passion and burden was to overthrow the Roman government. They were unequipped for the mission that he had called them to. But that was the whole reason. Jesus didn't want equipped people. Jesus wanted to equip them. No one would know that just a few decades later, the world would know who these men were. But it wasn't because of what they were. It was because of what the Lord Jesus would do through them. He takes the simple... He takes those who would be called foolish by the world and he turns them into people who would become like him. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26. Paul sees this as a pattern all throughout Scripture. That God takes diverse people, he takes unequipped people, he takes very broken people, and he displays his glory and he confounds those who think they have it all figured out. 1 Corinthians 1, verse 26, Paul says, For ye see your calling, brethren, how that not many wise men after the flesh, uh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. But God hath chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise, and God hath chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty. And base things of the world and things which are despised hath God chosen. Yea, and things that are not to bring to naught things that are that no flesh should glory in His presence. So why does God use broken people? Why doesn't He use people who have it all together? Because God uses broken people because they're the people, remember, He came to save. They are the people who He can display His glory in because they are the people who recognize they need God. They have nothing to offer. That no flesh should glory in His presence. But of Him are ye in Christ Jesus, who of God is made unto us wisdom and righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption. That according as it is written, he that glorieth, let him glory, or boast, or brag, in the Lord. That's who they were. 
Now in Christ's day, the world was filled with intellectuals and influential people. There were celebrated philosophers in Athens. There were unsurpassed scholars in Alexandria, Egypt. The most powerful political leaders the world had ever known were gathered in Rome in the Senate. Some of the most meticulous rabbis of all time were in and around Jerusalem. But Christ passes by them all, and He chooses very simple, crude, unknown, and uneducated fishermen and other men from Galilee to be His disciples. You ought to take comfort in that. I ought to take comfort in that. Martin Lloyd-Jones, the British preacher, says, I do not know how you feel, but I never cease to be grateful to these disciples. I am grateful for the record of every mistake they ever made, and for every blunder they ever committed, because I see myself in them. How grateful we should be to God that we have these scriptures. How grateful to Him that He has not merely given us the gospel and left it at that. How wonderful it is that we can read accounts like this and see ourselves depicted in them and how grateful we should be to God that it is a divinely inspired word which speaks the truth and shows in pictures every human frailty. Folks, we will see through the rest of the book of Luke that there will be very uh, obvious displays of their shortcomings and blunders. But that's exactly what we need to see. We need to see that Jesus... Fills all in all. Jesus fills what is lacking. These men will fail. One will betray Him in the end. Peter will deny Him. But Jesus still conquers and rules and He uses these weak men for His glory. Now in order to understand a little bit of this story and why this is significant, you need to know a little bit about the culture in that area of Galilee that Jesus was in. You see, the people of Galilee, that region in Israel, were the most religious people, were most religious Jews in the world in the time of Jesus. The Galilean people were actually more educated in the Old Testament, in the Bible, in its application than most Jews. More famous Jewish rabbis, teachers, came from Galilee than anywhere else in the world. They were known for their great reverence for Scripture. They had a passionate desire to be faithful to it. And this translated in the vibrant religious communities. They were devoted to strong families, their country, their synagogues would echo some of this debate and discussion about keeping the law of God. And they would resist the pagan influences of the Greeks far more than their other Jewish counterparts. That was the life that Jesus was born up into. He spent his ministry among these people. They knew the scripture by memory. They debated its application of scripture enthusiastically. They loved God with all their hearts, they thought, and their souls, and their might. Jesus is going to confront some of that. Ways that they were doing that in a flawed sense. But God had prepared this environment very carefully. So Jesus would have exactly the context he needed to deliver his message through the Lord Jesus of his kingdom. Now, if you were a young boy growing up in Jesus' time, the educational process, the Jewish uh, commentaries say that at five years old, one is fit for the scripture. At ten years old, the Mishnah, which was the the, uh, the interpretation of the law. And at 13, you were fit for the fulfilling of the commandments. At 15, the Talmud, that would be making interpretations. 
uh, being able to make interpretations on the text by yourself. At 18, the bride chamber, being married. At 20, pursuing a vocation. At 30, for authority, able to teach others. And that would describe the exceptional student there in Galilee. Very few would become teachers. By the way, you can see this process in the life of Jesus as well. Uh, We don't know a lot about his childhood, but we are told in Luke 2 that he grew in wisdom as a boy. And in Luke chapter 2, verse 41, he reaches the fulfilling of the commandments by attending the Passover at age 12. He learns a trade as a carpenter in Matthew 13 and Mark 6. He spends time with John the Baptist. He begins his ministry at about 30 years old. Parallels that description pretty closely. Now, where would you be educated? Well, schools were associated with the synagogues in Galilee, little gatherings there in first century Galilee. And each community, each village would hire a teacher who they would call a rabbi for their school. And that teacher would teach the, uh, the, the, the children in that school through the, through the synagogue. And it would focus primarily on the first five books of the Bible, Moses' writings. It would emphasize both reading and writing scripture. They would memorize large portions It's likely that many of these students even were able to memorize the entire Torah, the law of God, by memory. And it was at this time that there was kind of a breaking point. Most students stayed at home then to help with the family. Family business. Learning family trade. But there were some who would be able to continue on because they showed exceptional brightness as they were being trained by their rabbis. When you see Jesus' questions that he was asking in the temple at the Passover in Luke chapter 2, you can indi- you, that those indicate that he had done some real study in the Word of God. Well, the best students then would continue their study. And a few, even a very small, uh, uh, even a, even a uh, smaller few of the most outstanding students would seek, they would go and seek permission to study with a well-known rabbi. He would leave home to travel with him for a lengthy period of time if he accepted their uh, request. These students were called Talmudim. The Greek word is mathetes. Our English word is disciple. There's much more to a Talmud than what we would call a student. Sometimes we equate uh, a disciple with being a student. It's deeper than that. In our Western culture, a student is someone who wants to know what the teacher knows so they can pass the test, right? To complete the class, the degree. But a Talmudin, that would be the plural, or a Talmud, singular. A disciple wanted to be like the teacher. Not just to know what he knows, but to be like the teacher. Become what the teacher is. So these students would be passionately devoted to their rabbi. They would follow him everywhere. And the rabbi-disciple relationship was very intense and personal. The rabbi would live and teach his understanding of the scriptures to his students. And they would listen, they would watch, and they would imitate him as he lived out his applications of that scripture. Jesus was this rabbi. Notice what he does in verse 13. You see, in that culture, the bright students, the bright ones, 
they would go and request to follow a rabbi. Jesus goes and Jesus initiates it. Jesus chooses them. He breaks cultural tradition. And the fact that he is choosing people who are fishermen, people who are tax collectors, and other men kind of in that same social status level, tells us that he was picking men who hadn't made the cut. And what Jesus is saying to them, Jesus is calling them to be his disciples because he knows he can instruct and empower them and fill them with the Spirit to be like him. He knows they haven't made the cut, but he knows what he can do. So these Talmudim, they would listen and question, they would respond and question, they would follow without knowing where the rabbi was taking them, knowing that the rabbi had good reason for leading them to the right place for his teaching to make the most sense. They would, they would, uh, they, 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 they would study with him and learn from his life and imitate that. Turn over with me to Mark chapter 3. Jesus picks these guys. To be with him. Mark chapter 3, verse 14, it says, And he ordained twelve. Why? That they should be with him, and that he might send them forth. This rabbi believed that his Talmudim could be like him. His disciples could be like him. And in the culture of that day, when a rabbi believed that his disciples were prepared to be like him enough, then he would commission them to go and make other disciples. Disciple makers. Jesus uses this very practice. The disciples then would later go out to seek others who would imitate them and therefore become like Jesus. And that would bear amazing fruit, especially even in the Gentile world. So Jesus chose. They didn't choose them. He says that later on in John. He chose them because he knew what he could do in their lives. So what's the big deal? Why did Jesus choose them? Why did he choose twelve? I want you to understand why Jesus chose them, that it was not haphazard. It was a very deliberate strategy. This strategy was something that was thought out by the Lord Jesus. So Jesus here gathers his disciples, he chooses twelve, and he does that because it is time to prepare his official representatives. Jesus, recognizing the inevitability of his execution, realizes there will have to be some key men who will carry on the proclamation of the gospel for the salvation of Israel and the establishment of the church. And there isn't much time left, about two years, before they're going to have to go out on their own. So now is the time to choose them. And now is the time to begin their intense training of them being with him. So it's the sense of his own coming death that Jesus realized he must choose some who are going to carry on the work after he's gone. He names them apostles. That's important. 
You see, in Jewish religious culture, there is a ruling body of, of, uh, in that religious culture called the Sanhedrin. It was composed of 70 men. They kind of dictated the religious life of Israel. Sanhedrin, these 70 men, had representatives, appointed representatives. They had a tremendous uh, amount of power and authority. But they would delegate that power and authority, they would delegate that to to, to to, uh, uh, representatives called Shalia in Israel. And they would send them out with authority to act in their behalf, on the behalf of the Sanhedrin, usually to settle legal disputes. Disputes about the law or God or religious disputes. There were even some famous prominent rabbis in Israel that also had representatives sent once who would carry their authority and teach their message and represent them. So the Jewish people were very familiar with it, one who was sent forth, an apostle, was like. It was not a, not a foreign concept, but these were Jesus' apostles. These carried a different level of authority. And Jesus was going to have His own apostles, His own sent ones, who will bear Jesus' authority, have the power that He has, the doctrine that He has, and He will delegate that power and authority and message, and they will go and they will represent Him as His official representatives. In fact, this was understood that one who was a representative of a a rabbi, or one who was a representative as a shalia of the Sanhedrin, there's a Jewish uh, saying that said, the one sent by the man is as the man himself. Jesus is saying, I am identifying you twelve as my official representatives. But why twelve? Certainly there are twelve tribes of Israel. Jesus here is telling these twelve that they are the new community of Israel who will replace Israel's stubborn, rebellious leaders. These twelve. What does that mean for us today, well, folks? We 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 need to skip ahead in the story quite a bit and understand that in Acts chapter two, God brings down His Holy Spirit to those to those people gathering up the room, the apostles included, and then from that group of disciples, He builds His church, and those apostles then become the shepherds. They become the entrepreneurs, so to speak, of the church. They become the ones who teach the doctrine of what Christ had taught them. And they display and teach uh, and expand the gospel throughout the world. Jesus knew that these men would be the catalyst under the power of the Holy Spirit for the expansion of the gospel through forming gospel communities called churches that would be embassies of ambassadors of the King of Kings in a foreign land in a world. I want you to turn with me to Ephesians 2 again. See how important this is. Why this affects you today. Look again in Ephesians 2 and verse 19. Now therefore, ye are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God. God is forming His church and He calls it a household. He pictures it as a household. And then in verse 20, he displays why that household is legitimate because of their authority. Verse 20, and are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, the one that brings everyone together. So they are, they are, they are foundational, these men. 
Why are they foundational? Look in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 5. They received divine truth. Things that were a mystery before. The mystery of the gospel. The Gentiles and Jews now together. They received the mystery of the gospel. They were able to communicate it with those who would listen. Ephesians 3, 5. Which in other ages was not made known unto the sons of men. And it is now revealed unto his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. Not only that, but they were the source of doctrine. Acts chapter 2, verse 42. The early church, they would, they would gather together to be instructed in the doctrine of the apostles. The apostles' doctrine. What, what Jesus had told them in Matthew 28, to teach them all things whatsoever I commanded thee. They would gather to listen to that. Source of doctrine. They were to edify or to build up the church. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11. He gave some apostles. Then verse 12 tells why. For the perfecting of the saints. Completing of the saints. The work of the ministry for the edifying of the body of Christ. They were examples of the spirit-filled life. Back in Ephesians 3, 5 again it says, Holy apostles. They had miracle power to confirm the message. 2 Corinthians 12, verse 11 and 12. Paul says, I am become a fool in boasting or glorying. Ye have compelled me, for ought to have been commended of you. For in nothing am I behind the very chiefest apostles, though I be nothing. Truly, the signs of an apostle were wrought among you in all patience, and signs and wonders and mighty deeds. They had miracle power to confirm the message of God that it was legitimate. And in Luke 18, verse 23, they were greatly blessed. They were greatly blessed. So these men were committed to the spread of the new covenant in Christ, the gospel. And they spread and influenced others by making disciples and planting churches in Jerusalem and then Judea and then Samaria and the uttermost parts of the earth, even if it meant extreme suffering and death. Church tradition teaches that, us that Matthew suffered martyrdom by being slain with a sword in a distant city of Ethiopia. Mark died in Alexandria, Egypt after being cruelly dragged through the streets of that city. John was put in a cauldron of boiling oil but escaped death in a miraculous manner and was afterward banished to Patmos where he died in exile. Peter crucified with his head downward at his request. James the Greater was beheaded at Jerusalem. James the Lesser, James the son of Alphaeus, was thrown from a lofty pinnacle of the temple, then beaten to death with a fuller's club as he lay dying. Bartholomew was flayed alive. Andrew was bound to a cross in India where he preached to his persecutors until he died. Thomas was shot through the body with a lance in the East Indies. Jude was shot to death with arrows. Matthias stoned and then beheaded, who would later on replace Judas Iscariot, etc. So Jesus here, he prays for these precise men, these ordinary men, who he would entrust with the treasure of the good news. So that after he ascended and after he sent the Spirit to them, they would be the means that he would form other disciples who would look like him. By raising up these gospel communities, these embassies of ambassadors of the Savior King that would represent to the world the ways of the King, the truth of the King, and the life of the King in their words and deeds. 
and multiply his followers by making other disciples and then establishing other churches that would be faithful in doing the same. And folks, you are called upon to build upon that foundation of Christ and his apostles by applying their doctrine and those epistles to be like the rabbi, as they did. To grow in your influence to others by joining in the mission of the life and ways of Jesus and his apostles. And becoming established in the faith in our church and loving His new community of grace. Folks, this is what Jesus prayed I'm certain would happen through His men. How committed are you to be like the rabbi? What do you hold closer to yourself than Jesus' truth and His ways? Is it your physical fitness? Is it your job? Is it your property? Is it your family? Is it your money? Is it what other people think about you? Is it your addictions, whether secret or known? Is it your habits, your hobbies, your sports, your home, your possessions? Do you hold them closer to yourself than you hold the Rabbi Jesus, who will do the great things that He promises to do? among you as you heal. And how committed are you to his new community that he had in fledgling form here? His church. How committed are you to this body of believers? Folks, this is what Jesus called these men out for. A life of community in his grace who would value one another sacrificially. Yes, there were failures, but that's what proved the glory of Jesus to form himself in their failures. Value one another sacrificially, who would share the good news to the lost outside of the community, to be fed with the bread of life so they would never hunger again, and the water of life so they would never thirst again. How we need his Holy Spirit to repent of those things that are keeping us from total commitment as these men embodied later in their lives. Total commitment to the one who gave his lifeblood to rescue us from destruction and give us joyful life in him. We must be like Jesus in his word, in our loyalties, with our brothers and sisters, if we are to be like him. We must be with Jesus. Lord Jesus picks 12 men to be with him. Because he knew that, that was the way the world would be thrown upside down. Is it any different today? You must be with Jesus to be like Jesus. Are you with Jesus? In his word? You can't say you're with Jesus if you're not in his word. You can't say you're with Jesus if you're not depending upon him in prayer. You can't say with Jesus if you're trying to live this life in your flesh. See, he died to deliver to you the Spirit, which he said was far better than him sticking around. How bad, how badly do you want to be like the rabbi? Let's pray. Lord, once again, we're reminded of how we fall short when we come to the end of our rope. We need the God of all grace in our lives. 
We need the God who looks at us and says, I can do something with you when you're broken. Lord, raise our commitment to you because we love you. Raise our loyalty to you because of our growing love for you. Make us like you. We promise we do that as we trust and obey. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.